Okay, this is another edition of Musical Explorations. This is your host, Ted Peterson. And today we're going to listen to the music of Lou Harrison. And that was an excerpt from Lou Harrison's Concerto for Pipa and String Orchestra. Now, the pipa is a Chinese instrument. And as you will see as we talk about uh, Harrison's life and some of the things that happened to him and, uh, and some of the things that he explored, that he was extremely interested in music of Asia. And one of the things he's best known for is creating this thing called the American Gamelon. But before we do that, we're going to look at his life a little bit and things that led him, what led him to be interested in Asian music in the first place and what drove him, in a sense, to subjugate his Western musical training to uh, the music of the East, so to speak. Uh, uh, as we would know, the Asian uh, world we call the East, but in, in reality, for us, it's, it's, it's West. But uh, on the West Coast, it's West. On the East Coast, Asia is East, so... Who knows? All right. Anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about Harrison, and then we'll look at some of his music, and we'll figure out what this guy is all about. Lou Harrison, composer, performer. He's a musical advocate and early microtonalist. A micro, I'll explain about what microtonality is uh, later on, a little bit later. Uh, he was born on May 14, 1917, in Portland, Oregon. And... Um, uh, while he was traveling to Ohio State University to attend a, a complete retrospective of his works in March 2003, he died. Uh, he was 85 at the time, and his death was, his life was unusual and that he found more and more fame as he grew older. Most composers break on the scene early, then they kind of have a small uh, hiatus in a sense where their music loses interest, and then as they grow older, there seems to be retrospectives about their music and uh, there's very few that uh, that go from beginning to end and stay on top, and uh, some arrive at different times. Harrison was one of those who didn't arrive as an infant terrible or anything like that, but he, uh, he, he his his appreciation of his music and his uh, his art has grown over the years. Uh, there's reasons for this, and we'll hear it and we'll see it in his music. It's almost completely ignored on the East Coast. It was very interesting. Michael Tilson Thomas the conductor and music director of the San Francisco Symphony, uh, was a, absolutely loved Lou Harrison stuff and was a huge advocate of Lou Harrison. And there's a few reasons for this, but he thought he was looking for a composer that was not 100% represented in the catalogs, wasn't played a lot, and was California. He wanted to promote California composers, especially composers up in the, um, in the Bay Area, the North Area. So he helped get Harrison's stuff published. He helped him uh, get performances. Uh, we don't know that he helped him financially. We know Betty Freeman did. And he, in fact, he even wrote a, a, a little uh, concerto for or Betty Freeman. And, um, but he helped him bring a lot of his, um, uh, of his works to the public ear, 
shall we say. So uh, hats off to Michael Tilson Thomas, and, and, uh, and he's done that with other people too. Um, so that's good. He was born in Oregon, uh, as I said, uh, but he spent most of his life in California. And uh, he arrived here when he was about nine. So uh, he had some piano lessons, some music lessons earlier, but when he got here, that was it. Um, and a life of stability was not in the cards for this guy. His parents moved some like 18 or 19 times. And he went to, I think, 18 different high schools. Uh, he finally did graduate um, uh, from this thing called Burlingame High School. And I, I, I don't, they didn't ha used to have extension high schools back in the early turn of the year, but they had kind of uh, uh, schools where if you weren't on an academic uh, strain to go forward. They had these alternative schools. I think Burlingame was one of those in those days, kind of a rural school, a farm school. But he um, he went. He did graduate. It's near San Mateo, 1934. So he would have been 17. Uh, pretty good age. That's when most most kids graduate. As I said, he started studying music when he was in Oregon, and uh, when he died, uh, of course, 2003. I mean, that's a long career. Um, he really left a, a, a music that's really adventurous and for the time. Uh, now, if people did that, it wouldn't be considered much of anything. If we combine music uh, of different cultures together, it's not daring, it's not considered innovative, it's just considered kind of what people do in a, in a normal sense of working with music. But he really promoted this idea, uh, along with the cowl, Henry Cowell and, and, uh, and John Cage much earlier than other composers did it in, in Europe and things like that. But they went to such an extent that it almost put them outside of the traditional classical musical world. Uh, they really were kind of original in that, in that respect, and that's kind of interesting. Um, but he wrote poetry, wrote lots of poetry, um, and his music was also something that he liked to do was he liked to stick politics in his music. He was avowedly gay. Uh, we say gay now, they called it homosexual in those times, but he was an, an advocate of, really early advocate of gay rights. The 30s, 1930s, you're thinking, my God, how could, you know, people back then didn't think the same as they do now. There was no openness about it. I mean, even uh, uh, if you saw the, the study that John Kin uh, Kinsey did, not John, but uh, that Kinsey did, about the uh, uh, the effects and the amounts of of, uh, of same-sex relationships in society, but in the 30s, in the 20s and 30s, that just was was so underground as to almost not even exist. So, but he was an advocate. He was out. He was an open guy. This is what he did. He lived with a guy named Bill Kovig his entire life, and even wrote music to him, me and Bill, and stuff like that. And but. Uh, and in, in a sense, that took takes a lot of courage. I mean, you think about in the 1930s to come out and uh, advocate on behalf of people that wanted to have same-sex relationships, and he supposedly wrote this in his music. Now, I don't know of any piece of music that you would listen to and say, boy, that guy was really gay, or that guy was really a heterosexual, or that guy was anything other than a composer. So I, I don't know that it worked ever that his musical politics played out in the sense of his music, but certainly in the causes and the things that he supported, yes, it, it would have would have made a lot of difference. Um, uh, his poetry is, is called culturally transgressivism. 
I don't even know what that means. Totally culturally transgressive. What does that mean? He's dropped out of our culture. I mean, he's gone back to some kind of early thing. I looked it up. It doesn't seem to make much sense with what it says on the on in my dictionary and um, on on the internet. It doesn't seem to make any difference. So um, they were totally unorthodox for the time. Now they're very very mild, but for the time. Stuff that he was doing was considered really adventurous. Remember, the whole world was moving into atonality, and uh, you know Stravinsky was writing his his own brand of tonality, which was a was a whole different I look at the way that uh, that t- music is put together for tonally. Schoenberg was also working to destroy all that. He he thought that tonality was finished and. Um, and worked to to do that to to actually destroy tonality. And he thought anybody who worked in the tonal area was some kind of a retarded moron or something like that. He he wrote some articles that were very disparaging towards Stravinsky and towards anybody else. In fact, he called he called Stravinsky little moderninsky. So um, you know, there's a, the, the when you when you adopt into a system and you invest your life into something, it it it's important to you and it tends to uh, breed uh, animosity towards people who have an opposite point of view. We see it with the Republicans and the Democrats now. It's a kind of kind of dumb, but you know, they forget that we're all Americans, and they they seem to think that we're somehow divided. You know, um, his early musical life centered around him, piano and violin. He sang a little bit. Uh, he had a, had a very high voice, um, a, a very high tenor tenor voice, and he tried some composing. Um, in fact, I would say his, his voice probably was higher than a tenor. It would be more like a soprano. But um, I heard him talk. I have some uh, some recordings of him. I never met him, even though I went to Betty's uh, uh, for a few years and before her husband died uh, and she stopped doing the musicals. Um, I attended them, and, and, uh, and I've, I've been into San Francisco places, and I've been into lots of California composer things and looked into microtonal areas. But I just never encountered this guy. I never was at a concert with him. I never, never really saw him anywhere. And, and you know, figure 2003, you know, that's within uh, uh, 20 years he's, he, he died. And I certainly was operating. I was living up here at the time so, and traveling to San Francisco a lot. So uh, it was surprising. We just never crossed paths. I knew a lot of people who knew him and who actually went and studied with him and, and, and worked with him. He wasn't one that was in, involved with the, the People's Temple or anything like that on the, on the Central Coast here. Uh, he, he might have been here, but as far as I know, there's no record of that in any of his biographies or anything like that. As I said, he studied San Francisco and violin. He went to San Francisco State College. These are now called University of California, San Francisco. I went to University of California, Northridge. It used to be called San Fernando's Valley State was what it used to be called. Uh, Anyway, he stayed there three semesters, said, I'm done with this. Um, he played the horn, uh, clarinet, uh, and harpsichord, and he played the recorder. He got involved with the medieval music and worked with those ensembles. And um, he wrote music for the early music ensembles, but it was kind of his own music, and it was, um, you would call it pan-diatonic, but, but more precisely, his music at that time was more like um, pentatonic music, more like music from Asia. So if you take all the white uh, black notes on the piano and play them, 
you will get pentatonic music. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to show you what the pentatonic scale is. It's, it's the five black notes of the piano. All right, what's a pentatonic scale? Pentatonic, penta, is five. So we have, if I play a C major scale from C to C, I have... And if I play it from C to C, a pentatonic scale, I'm playing... You hear the difference, C major. And a pentatonic. Okay, five notes. You can play those in any keys. I could play it in D, I could play it anywhere. If I play it, if, if you want to play pentatonicism and you have a piano, just play on all the black notes. Pentatonic scale. So a pentatonic scale is still tonality because it's centered around a key base, if you use it that way, but it's not a diatonic system like the Western musical system. I mean, people have used uh, diatonic scales. Uh, Debussy used them, and so did Ravel, but only in certain, certain small parts of what they did. Harrison, of course, wrote whole pieces using this type of thing, and you can hear it. It has a very Asian kind of sound. So... We come to think of Chinese music, pentatonic music. It had to do with these stones. These uh, They were called lu in China, and they would use these stones as tuning things, and they found these five tones to make the, the pentatonic scale. It's not exactly the same tuning as our well-tempered. Remember, this is a well-tempered system. The other thing that uh, uh, Harrison was involved with was uh, microtonality, which in which case we have a, a our chromatic scale has... 12 tones. And then back to the C, which would be the 12th. In uh, microtonality, we want to take those, those and break them up. So in between here and here, there's another tone in there. I'm going to play some examples of that later. Okay, 1935, he enrolls in Henry Cowell's music course called Music of the Peoples of the World. And uh, he developed a lifelong friendship with, with Cowell. They hit, and it was, boy, like like minds and symbiosis immediately. And um, he worked with Cowell professionally and also uh, personally. They were, they were very close friends. Uh, like I said, I never met Cowell either. But, um, um, in fact, there's lots of composers I never met, so I don't know if that makes any difference. Um, and Cowell introduced him to Charles Ives. Now, Charles Ives was working in a, in a musical style so different from what anybody else was doing. Remember, Ives was not really well-performed. He was a church organist. And uh, Ives was a, was a real big influence on, on uh, Harrison, more so than he was on Cowell. They, uh, uh, Cowell knew Ives. He did some editing for him and things like that. And, uh, and he... And, uh, it actually got so close uh, with uh, with Ives and with uh, Harrison um, that when uh, Ives died, uh, he, he was sent a box of manuscripts of Ives' manuscripts that were never were unpublished, and and Harrison edited them and put them together and published them all, which uh, of course went to uh, um, Ives' estate. His wife got them, but 
um, got any any benefit from it. Unfortunately, Ives is one of those composers who, who who had very few public performances in his life, even ones that he put on himself. Varese did some things of his and other people, but his stuff was so huge and so difficult to do that if a major orchestra didn't do it and and perform it, then you were pretty shot. And he wrote gigantic orchestral works, and they were just huge, requiring huge forces. Um, so it's uh, you. We have to support the composers. We have to support our composers. We should, this little orchestra here, I keep saying this, they should be working with several local composers and getting their stuff performed. Doesn't have to be the greatest stuff in the world. It just has to be that they're involved. Our, our orchestra here should not be just an orchestra that performs known works of European composers and known work. We should be experimenting and putting new works out and new composers and trying new things. That's what makes music live. If we don't have orchestras and people that get behind new music, we don't have a, a um, an intelligentsia living here who, like Betty Freeman, sponsored new music as she grew older and older and older. She did more of it. As she got into middle age and later years, she was very delighted to have new composers uh, at her house all the time. We need to have that same thing here. It's okay to have people who only like Mozart and Bach and Beethoven. Those were great composers. But we need people also to want to like new composers and to want to experiment and to have some, some fun. You go into somebody's house and they'll show you, they'll brag about their contemporary paintings and their contemporary art. You don't see them sitting with traditional stuff and pictures of otters all over the wall. Uh, like we have lots of artists here paint otters and rocks and they're good little artists but they're not doing anything interesting and interesting new in a sense. They're making kind of uh, very nice art, but it's like utilitarian art. There are artists here who are trying to experiment and do new things. People are proud of that. But when you come to music, they somehow have a block. They, they don't want to do it. Oh, my God, no new music. Ooh, that's horrible stuff. So you never know. You know the idea is, is that you've got to try it and see what, how it fits. Anyway, Harrison spent... 10 years editing and, and working with uh, uh, Ives Music and, um, and, and in, in conjunction with uh, Michael Tilson Thomas. And they did, did a lot of good stuff and got a lot of Ives things out there. So let's play some of this Harrison's music. Let's see what, he, what he's doing. Let's go back to the 30s because we don't have anything before that. So the earliest works we have of his are from the late 30s. Um, which is, of course, we're gearing up for World War II in this country, but uh, on the West Coast, it was, we were virtually untouched. There was some Japanese influence here. And we had, uh, I think the start of the camps was people were looking at the idea of the Manzanars and places like that, 39. We hadn't been bombed yet. Uh, there was no Pearl Harbor. Of course, Europe was at war. We were, we were gearing up for it. So what was jo uh, Lou Harrison uh, doing in 1939? Let's listen. Thank you. 
Okay, that was his first, an excerpt from his first concerto for flute and percussion, 1939. He used a lot of percussion in, in his entire career. Let's listen to something called the um, Canticle Number no. 1. This is also from 1939. excerpt from something Harrison called the Fifth Symphony, even though he wrote it in 39, it said he wrote six, and he, he went backwards. He wrote that as his first symphony was written in the, almost 2000. Oh, clever character. Who knows how many he would have written if he would have started with a higher number. Fifth Symphony, uh, Lou Harrison. Lots of percussion uh, is basically a percussion work. And you'll hear that throughout his stuff. Let's jump forward a little bit here. And this is called The Song of Quetzalcoatl. He wrote this in 1941. So this is, uh, we're, we're really gearing up for war, but he obviously had little truck with it. Now, if he hadn't heard a gamelan before he wrote this, he was well on his way. He had somehow had intuited Balinese music and the whole gamelan sound, or even the Javanese gamelan. For some reason, he uh, was att really attracted to this. Now, why he associated this with Quetzalcoatl, I have no idea, because it doesn't remind me of anything that uh, was South American or any of the stuff that uh, Carlos Chavez or any of the other South American composers were doing at the time. If you listen to what they're doing, it's completely 
different. They're not doing this kind of, uh, uh, how would you say it, uh, almost like a throwback kind of music where they're trying to show primitivism in a way. Um, anyway, Harrison loved San Francisco. He went to the public library. He studied there and performed. He went to the Chinese operas. Uh, for 25 cents, you could go see an entire Chinese opera in Chinatown back then, and he would he would go do that. And he loved the instruments, so he he got involved with the with learning how to play the cheng, the pipa. We heard the pipa and uh, and orchestra piece, the chin, which is like a it looks like the koto. It's a long instrument uh, with a bunch of strings on it, and you play it different ways of playing it. Um, in fact, I'll do a program on Asian uh, music here. Uh, coming down the line. We got a long way to get to that, though. And the rebob. So he worked with those throughout his life. But his interest in these instruments, also he included them in his music. He didn't write what you would call Chinese music or Japanese music or Balinese music. It was the Balinese sound or the Japanese sound or the Chinese sound. He thought that if he could write original pieces and use their musical systems, that he would be kind of integrating them into his musical style. Uh, there's no record of him writing Chinese opera. Uh, there's no pieces that I can find. Uh, Rapunzel will play a little piece from Rapunzel is his only real opera, and uh, it doesn't sound anything like Chinese opera. And uh, I'll play some A and B parts of that. But um, Harrison uh, uh, was was really well liked. People that worked with him really liked him. Uh, they they always talk about how what a great guy he was and what a what a nice artist he was and, and how well he was. So, 43, he moved to New York. Um, I don't know what happened, but he wanted to go to New York where he met uh, um, uh, Virgil Thompson. Virgil Thompson was writing for this thing called the Herald uh, Tribune at the time, and uh, uh, he was writing musical criticism, and, uh, and, uh, and Thompson... Um, uh, was also working at the New York Herald Tribune, and Harrison became a critic. Uh, remember, even in World War II, the United States, even though we were bombed in Pearl Harbor, the United States was virtually untouched uh, by World War II. Like World War One, we were, we were virtually untouched in World War One. World War II, we were involved. We sent troops into it, uh, and but we were other than the Pearl Harbor and our hegemony on the on the on the eastern world, so to speak, um, we, we didn't have anything, nobody bombed any place in the United States. There are some little reports that something was done up in the Aleutian Islands, but uh, in reality, nothing was ever d dropped on our shore. We've never been bombarded. We've never been invaded since the British, uh, 1812. But um, you know, we've had a pretty easy run of it here for a, for a couple of hundred years. Uh, while he was in New York, he met Judith Molina, and she was directing uh, this thing called the Living Theater, and he got involved with that. And um, he had already established, he was already a, a presenter of new music, and uh, he worked with John Cage, and they did some percussion concerts in 1939 in New York. Uh, Well-received, by the way. Um, the, I don't know how close he was with Cage all his life. Cage never mentioned him. I, I did meet Cage and to talk to him, but uh, never, never mentioned anything. I never asked him about Harrison, but I don't... Yeah, he was older at the time when I met him, and I don't know that he would have been interested in talking about Lou Harrison. Um, life in New York didn't suit him. He, he tried very hard to, to make it there, and New York is, was one of those places that the composer has to conquer New York. I and mean, even to 
the day when I was in school, my teachers said, Ted, you've got to go to New York and you have to conquer New York. And I said, ah, baloney. Uh, so now I'm living in Los Osos, California, and doing a little radio show here instead of in New York with uh, uh, Phil Glass and uh, Stephen Wright. Anyway, uh, New York didn't suit him. He ended up having a uh, uh, mental breakdown. He was living on subsistence wages. He was living in a what they called a cold water flat, I guess. He was had to haul uh, wood up to his uh, to a kerosene. He had kerosene. Had to haul it up to his place and. And keep it hot. Anyway, he didn't do well, and he flipped out. 1947. So he went from 30, or from 43 to 47. He tried to make it there, working as a critic. He's making some little money, but not much. Uh, newspaper people didn't make a lot of money like they do now, and even today, I don't know if it's a. a I was a stringer for the L.A. Times and was making a hundred dollars an article. I mean, that's not much even in today's world. Um, and a, a little paper here, $25, when I did stuff for the, the little Tribune here. So it's a, the newspaper world as a writer isn't much of one unless you're hired as some kind of uh, executive at the paper or something like that. You can make some money, I guess. But even then, it was not a well-paying job. Anyway, he flipped out, uh, as we say, and it was pretty bad. He was hospitalized for quite a while. And, um, and, and uh, we don't know that it affected his music or not, but... You know, there's a funny thing because the East Coast tends to look towards Europe for inspiration. And he's here trying to represent this Western music. I haven't seen any any reviews of his music, but he might not have had much uh, much of a good time there getting his stuff performed. He might have performed it, but it, maybe it was considered very juvenile or something because people didn't understand what he was doing or didn't even care because they were still looking towards Europe, which was deeply embroiled in, in war. You know, Schoenberg was living on the West Coast. He lived in L.A. So did Stravinsky. In fact, they lived in L.A. with houses that were, uh, they were, they were, they were touched. The corners of their houses touched. It's like living in a rural area. They both lived in Bel Air, and um, uh, I've been to both houses and seen them. And uh, you can, uh, uh, if you go out of uh, uh, Stravinsky's backyard and you look over to the right, you see uh, uh, Schoenberg's place and Schoenberg. Love tennis. He played tennis all day long, and um, and if you go out of Schoenberg's place and look off to the right, you see Stravinsky's house. Their wives were very good friends. They never associated. They met one time at farmers market buying stuff, but uh, it was 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 rough. But even though they lived on the West Coast and were involved with a lot of the West Coast things, Harrison for some reason never was involved with that crowd down there and and uh, in L.A. and was staying up in San Francisco. But in New York, he didn't do much of anything. He, I came down to L.A. And, uh, for Betty's. I know because he was at Betty's. And uh, I saw the, she has logs of all her stuff, and he was there. Anyway, <clears throat> so um, he had a mental breakdown. Uh, it happens. So he undergoes this personal disaster, and he's forced to reexamine his music. And it's what he does. He reexamines everything. I don't know what he had been doing there or trying to do. Maybe he was trying to do serial stuff or atonal things. But um, he examined everything. Every bit of his life. He, has a, he, he visit, weekly visited a psychiatrist from the time he got out of the hospital until he died. And he um, uh, worked, uh, went through a whole self-realization process, not like the SRS, Self-Realization Fellowship type of thing with Yogananda Paramahansa, 
But he went into his own way of trying to figure out what is it he wants to do? What is it he wants to write? What does he want to represent? And when he did with that process, with that self-examination, was he kind of was defining his parameters for his mute music. Now, one would suspect that you have a mental breakdown and you spend 10 years or so re-examining the kind of music that you're doing, what, there would be two completely different things, right? In other words, the music that you did before that would be completely different than the music you did afterwards. That wasn't the case with Harrison. His music was on a pretty consistent uh, direction. It was, it was basically Asian music he was interested in. He did develop something called the American Gamelon after the, uh, after the break, but you could see in the early music that his, his influence and his uh, interest in the Gamelon was established long before uh, he ever had a, a breakdown in, in self-examination. So it, we can't say, that, well, well, he, he broke down and he decided to do the Gamelon. didn't work that way. But he did do some things. One, he never he didn't write counterpoint. He said counterpoint wasn't part of what I wanted to do anymore. He stopped doing that. We'll play a couple examples of what that is. And uh, uh, post forty seven, I don't think there's any counterpoint. It's all what they call homophonic music. He would play chords and a melody that would go along with it. Uh, counterpoint was virtually non-existent in the things that he was doing. So um, now. What is counterpoint? You might ask. This is a good time to talk about this. Counterpoint is a musical process where you have two voices and you play one voice against the other voice. So, I'll give you an example. on top of that, this melody. So now I have two separate melodies and I'm going to put them together and the two of them will create what's known as counterpoint, note against note, point against point. Okay, hardly Bach. But the exercise was to show what two distinct voices. You can hear each voice with very distinctly and very clearly you could hear two voices. Now, now that you understand what counterpoint is, Harrison didn't use it after his break, after 1940s. He stopped using it. So, uh, Harrison, Lou, Lou Silver Harrison. Kind of like Tyo Silver, but Lou Silver Harrison was his name. Um... He, he collaborated with lots of composers. He worked with John Cage. He worked with Henry Cowell. As I said, he studied with Schoenberg. Um, and uh, we, we've heard some of his early stuff. I mean, I played uh, at the beginning there uh, uh, some 1939 pieces. That's the earliest stuff we have of his. 
The latest stuff we have is around 2000. He supposedly was writing up until 2003, but I don't know of any examples of that, um, the, the latter stuff. I don't think it's been done yet or it's not completed. But after his break, uh, he was very fortunate. He was a very well-liked man, and other composers really helped him get back on his feet. Among them was John Cage, and John Cage knew, uh, was trying to get him to teach and I said, you'll be fine in an academic environment. we got to get you some money. We, you can't be broke like this. You can't be living like this anymore. And Cage wasn't doing all that great himself, but he was certainly doing a lot better than Harrison at the time. And uh, so he recommended that um, um, Cage go out and find, he tried to find a university for him uh, that would, um, uh, would, would allow Cage, would allow Harrison to develop the theories in the music that he was developing and also teach uh, some classes. Uh, but there's a, there's a problem. I mean, now, the war is over. And it was, very, it was very hard to find somebody interested in doing music. And, and no matter how effective one was at teaching, he had a mental break. And in the 1940s, that was considered like, like having smallpox. It was infectious. People thought crazy people were infectious. You could get crazy from being around crazy people. And, um, but Cage was persistent. Uh, and he finally found a school um, uh, called the uh, Black Mountain College. It was in uh, North Carolina, and he recommended uh, Lou Harrison, and Lou Harrison actually went there, and he accepted, stayed there from 1951 to 1953. Now, let's, we have some music from 1951, and we have some music from that era, so let's take a listen to what Harrison was composing when he was working at the college. <laughs>
Well, hardly the music of a crazy man. That was uh, Lou Harrison, Suite for Violin, Piano, and Small Orchestra, 1951. So that certainly, from just that, would have been enough of a credential, you would think, to hire him as a composing teacher. Uh, but you could still hear, in Harrison's music, you can still hear the Asian influence. You can still hear the pentatonicism and the use of pandiatonicism, where basically two two keys at the same time, like, like playing always on the white keys of the piano or the black keys of the piano, that type of thing. Now, this was conducted by no less of a stalwart than Leopold Stokowski. As I said, remember, Stokowski was a conductor and championed American music and was always looking around for new composers to perform, and he even put his own little orchestra together and would do performances. Not only did he do the Disney uh, Fantasia and those type of things, but he actually did his own little orchestra, and he went around. He would look out new composers to perform. An adventurous, bold mind. We need more people like that. The other thing that uh, uh, Harrison became involved with, and we have a difficult time doing it here and, and explaining what it is, but uh, the microtonality. I'm going to try, I'm going to make an attempt to show you what it is. Uh, and we don't have a lot of his microtonal pieces. This is very interesting because uh, he, he really was a proponent of microtonality. He, he developed a scale of 16 tones. That means more than 12 tones in an octave. Our chromatic scale has 12 tones from C to C. So starting on C, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and back to C is 13. 12 tones and 12 intervals. Now, Harry Parch, a friend of, uh, of uh, Harrison's and also a friend of Kyle's. He developed a system where there were 43 tones in between this C and this C. So it was a 43-tone scale. But uh, uh, Harrison had 16. Now, I can't really do it. What I'm going to try and do is show uh, uh, through the use of my keyboard because I have a way I can bend notes, and I'll try to show you what, what a microtonal sound would be like. Okay, it's going to be a little tricky, but here's, a, here's the smallest tone we have in our chromatic scale. C to C sharp. Okay, that's a half step. I mean, if we do the whole scale, it's all half steps. Harrison uh, wanted to have more. He wanted to have 16, which would mean that, that, that this, is, this toning here wouldn't be equal tempered. It would be a little bit off. It would be something like this. And you can hear that it's a tone in between the, the, the half steps there. So that was, that's, that's a basic idea of microtonality. Now, I can't, on my keyboard, I can't produce a 16-tone scale. I can do mean tuning on this with wolves. Uh, the, if you do mean toning, there's always what they call a wolf. It's between the, the, the half steps. There's, there's a chance that what you'll get is a sound that kind of used to be called the wolf because in string instruments, uh, when they because they are all string instruments are are tuned just intonation because your fingers will just move that way anyway. They don't play equal temperament. Your fingers and your ear wants to play just intonation, and uh, and uh, every once in a while you'd hit a certain tone and this thing would come out of the instrument would go, <sighs> and they called that the wolf. And, uh, and the guitar, uh, really, you can tell a very good guitar still has wolves on it. Even though a guitar is equally tempered because of the fretting, it still produces wolves in certain notes. You can hear it'll be playing on a, on a guitar, all of a sudden you'll hear a thing go, 
on certain notes. Well, on violins and on uh, other string instruments, they've put little things called the wolf stop, which stopped that vibration from happening when, when people played it on the instrument. But we're not going to go into an explanation of wolves right now, but or of coyotes or of uh, any other furry canines. And spe speaking of fur, though, Lou Harrison did have a full beard. He, he kind of looked like one of the uh, 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 duck uh, uh, commanders uh, guys, one of these duck uh, avengers or whatever they call that program. Those these guys with big beards and things. He, he had a long, big beard like that. Kind of interesting. So uh, remember, I said he studied with, uh, with Harry Parch, was a friend of his, and they both studied with, with Cowell. And, uh, and they both developed alternative music systems and built their own instruments. And, uh, and uh, Harrison's became known as the American Gamelon, is what he built. And he used the model of a Balinese Gamelon, which he had heard. And uh, Parch, and I'm going to do a show on Parch, uh, Harry Parch, because he's such an interesting guy. Uh, he used the Greek, old ancient Greek model of the kithra. And he built these instruments. He built his first one was an organ uh, he built, which was had 43 tones in between the octaves. So you can imagine when you're playing, instead of half steps and you hear that distinct move, it was you could barely hear the thing, and it just sounded like a big glissando going up. So, or down, whichever way you choose to do it. So let's see, what else was Harrison doing here? Um... I'm going to play a little bit of Rapunzel because it is his only full opera and there's a lot of people that have done analysis about it and uh, investigation into it. it is, it's, it's a wonderful piece. So let's hear a little bit of Lou Harrison's Rapunzel. Here's the problem, an hour show and, and so much music and so little time. Okay, anyway, that was Rapunzel, a little excerpt from Rapunzel. I want to move forward now. 
and let's listen to something uh, much later. That was uh, uh, 1952. He was still teaching at the college. Let's go up to 1966 and take an excerpt from something called the Easter Cantata. I'm just going to do a short excerpt from that. But there's a reason I'm stopping here. If you listen back when I said about counterpoint, he had said that he's not going to write counterpoint anymore. But now we're up to the Easter Cantata. This is now 1966. Uh, so about 20 years after his, uh, his re-examination, self-examination, he's writing counterpoint again. And you can hear it in the strings. So for his statement that I'm not going to write counterpoint anymore, we can see he didn't really live up to that. So what else do we have here? He developed this, uh, the American Gamelon, of course. Um, uh, the the uh, idea of the American Gamelon, the, lots of percussion instruments and things like that. So you would think, well, handcrafted instruments, all this American Gamelon stuff like that, we're going to have some really far out music. That's not what we got. We didn't get anything super atonal. We didn't get anything uh, super out there. So let's take a listen to a, a couple more pieces. I want to play something called um, uh, Le Coro Sutro. And this is with the American Gamelon that he wrote. Uh, this is 1973. <laughs>
again, back to the gamelan. And that, of course, that's from the American gamelan type of sound. And you can hear his use of, of Balinese, the, the pentatonic type of sound with, the, with his music. So let's go forward again. We're going to go up to this, another piece from the uh, American gamelan. Um, and this piece is called Gendeng Pak Chokro. 1976. That might be the American gamelan, but I'll tell you, you can't discern that from Balinese music at all, hardly. Okay, 1979. Let's move up. And remember, he's, uh, we're trying to figure out if, if, if he really lived up to his, uh, uh, the hype. You know, I still haven't heard any craziness in his music. Okay, here's a piece he wrote called Threnody for Carlos Chavez. Uh, after... Uh, Penderecki wrote Threnody for the victims to Threnody to the victims of Hiroshima. Threnody, even uh, Stravinsky wrote a Threnody piece called Threnny. Anyway, um, all right, here it is. <laughs> life of me, I don't know how Carlos Chavez, an, an eminent Mexican composer, probably the, the greatest living, or greatest known, not living, of course, but greatest known Mexican composer, uh, how he got associated with Bali, I'll never know. But that was, was Harrison's inspiration, and it was a, it's a wonderful piece. That was 1979. So that's what he was writing, still the American Gamelon idea. Let's jump up to something in 1987 called The Varied Trio. We're just going to take excerpts.
you can still hear very heavy the uh, uh, Asian influence in this uh, use of pentatonic scales and, and that type of thing. Um, wonderful performances of, of these, by the way. And, um, you know, they're, they're out there. You can buy them. And I would suggest you go out and get some Lou Harrison, put it in your library. You'll be, you'll be, you'll be very surprised. Not all of his pieces are great. Some of them are, are less than others, but they're all interesting in a very weird way. Now we're going to listen to something called Sonata for Harpsichord. Now this is really kind of a wild piece. had a sampling of some Lou Harrison music. I'm going to play, uh, under my last little talk here, I'm going to play uh, uh, arias from uh, this thing, uh, Young Caesar, he called it. And uh, we don't know if it's from Caesar or from Caesar, Caesar Chavez or Caesar uh, from uh, Rome. So uh, but let's listen to it, and then we'll go out. And uh, again, this is... Musical Explorations. My name is Ted Peterson. I'm your host. And let's see, next week I think we're going to look at Harry Parch. I've talked enough about Parch. I think we should look at him. So we've had John Cage, Henry Cowell, Lou Harrison. We're going to now hit Henry Parch. And then we're going to hit some other composers. I'm going to try and get Carl Stone uh, to come in from San Francisco and do a, uh, do a talk on what he's doing and some other composers around. Uh, David Ocker is one working down in Los Angeles. So we'll get some people up here and have some fun. Well, <clears throat> I actually have a little extra time. So um, I'm going to talk about new music. Why is it? And, and I've asked this question a number of times to a number of people, but why is it that people so, are so afraid of new music? What is it about new music that turns people off? Why don't they want to go hear a concert of somebody doing something new and experimental? And I think one of the reasons is that people don't look at music the same way they look at art. See, when you're looking at a piece of art, you can always turn away from it and go do something else. But when you're sitting in a concert and you're confronted with a piece of music, where if it takes you to a place that's psychically very bad for you, you can't just get up and turn away. It's, it's impolite to get up and walk out. So you're kind of stuck in whatever that composer is doing. But I urge you, take some chances, go see some new music, lobby our orchestra to play new composers and to get some new composers' works on the programs. It's very important to musical life of our county here. 